<clears throat> court is in session. Facebook court. Yes. This week on Download the Show, Facebook went to the effort of setting up what has been referred to as its very own Supreme Court to oversee the big calls on what content is and is not allowed on the platform. But just how well is that working out? And should other social media companies follow suit? Plus, can you change people's behaviour on Twitter with subtle targeted messages? Or even better, literally tipping them actual money. And Apple's new AirTags are designed to be attached to keys and wallets to beep when you lose them. So why are they concerned about it being used by abusive partners and in a separate issue? Why did one major retailer pull them off the shelves? All that and much more. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. Welcome to another instalment of What Weird Thing Did Facebook Do This Week? Our special guests are analysts with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE for short, Ariel Bogle. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. And he is an associate editor with Crikey. Do not ask him what that means. It's Cameron Lawson. Welcome back to Download the Show. Hi, good to be back. It means fancy reporter. <laughs> fancy reporter. That, okay, well, that's how you're going to be known for the rest of the show. Fancy reporter, Cameron Thanks. Lawson. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start off this week with the Supreme Court, dot, 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 of Facebook, which is a thing which we will uh, explain shortly. It has its own Supreme Court, uh, and they made a really important decision regarding the former President Trump. Ariel, I'll let you take this one. Uh, what is the Supreme Court of Facebook, and what did they decide? Sure. So the Facebook Oversight Board, as you put it, the Supreme Court, some like to call it, others profoundly disagree with that characterization, <laughs> but it's a body of independent experts, I suppose, mostly lawyers, let's be honest, that were put together last year uh, in as to act as a kind of independent oversight for Facebook when it comes to content moderation decisions. So at the moment, say, if you have a post that is removed by Facebook, maybe it says that you broke hate speech rules or you're harassing somebody or it's inappropriate nudity, they take it down. And this is kind of the highest point that you can appeal that decision to. And so since the beginning of the year, the board has started working and started releasing decisions about content that was kind of appealed up to that top level. And it doesn't uh, look at everything. It picks and chooses the topics that they think essentially have the most uh, policy resonance, the most important decisions for shaping Facebook's overall approach to content moderation. And so, of course, in the wake of January 6th, the riot in the US Capitol, Facebook, along with Twitter and YouTube took some dramatic steps around Donald Trump's account. And in the case of Facebook, it claimed that Trump's content had been inciting violence and it sort of put him on an indefinite suspension. They later referred that decision to the Facebook Oversight Board. And last week, the board came back with its decision, which essentially, uh, and I think we'll sort of nut out the detail here, but broadly, it said that Facebook uh, did not overturn Facebook's decision to indefinitely suspend Trump, but essentially punted it back to Facebook. It said, look, your policy around this kind of issue is not clear. You need to take six months and come back with a new decision around Trump's account and we'll take it from there. Right. So it's exactly as efficient and elegant as any other legal situation then. 
Yeah, more or less, <laughs> but with less, probably less uh, judicial oversight in general, because, you know, as much as we like to call it the Supreme Court in general, uh, there's a lot of checks and balances around legal systems. You know, in some countries, judges are elected. In Australia, uh, the High Court judges are selected by elected officials. Mm. Uh, the Oversight Board, uh, not so much. So, all right. So, Cameron, let's talk about the decision itself. Do you think they made the right decision punting it back to Facebook then? What I think the real value is in it is starting to delve into some of these kind of more nuanced debates and in a more transparent way. Because at the moment, like, you know, a lot of content moderation is just decided, I reckon, on the fly. And there are very kind of big and vague policies. And to some extent, they have to be. You've got to deal with a a whole variety of human behavior. What this decision does is kind of go into it and say, you need to be more specific on this. You know, specifically, you know, you've banned Trump. You found that these posts that he did violated your inciting violence policy. And as a result, you know, yes, you've decided to ban them, but you can't just do that. You know, you can't just do that willy nilly. You can't just say, we'll ban you and we'll kind of get back to it at some point. They're saying you kind of need some kind of specificity about it. And I think that's kind of important because a lot of the time, you know, these debates don't really happen inside companies. They don't happen with any stakes. It's usually from academics and um, and journalists. Um, in this situation, we're seeing a company and, you know, it's extension. It's Of course, it's independent, but it, it is part of it. Kind of have to have that debate in the open. Mm. I mean, as much as there are criticisms, Ariel, of commercial organisations furnishing or garnishing themselves with organisations that, that look and feel a little bit governmental to kind of give you this sense of officialdom, as much as that has been open to kind of pretty reasonable criticism, the fundamental idea of having a sort of separate kind of adjudication unit to discuss major events, particularly for an organisation as big as Facebook, do you think it's the sort of idea that's worth implementing at other social media organisations? Twitter and YouTube also made decisions around Trump uh, in the days after January 6th, but neither of them have an institution like the Facebook Oversight Board to keep this discussion going. So we've kind of accepted it, I think, really as a fait accompli that Trump will no longer be on Twitter and on YouTube. I think it's also a sort of indefinite, um, he may, we may let him back on at some point kind of decision. So but this kind of drags it out for Facebook, doesn't it? Definitely. And I think what was interesting too about the Oversight Board decision to uphold uh, Facebook's original decision to suspend Trump, but the issue they took with it was this sort of idea of an indefinite suspension, which I think they described more or less as a sort of sui generis punishment that Facebook does not really exist within Facebook policies as they existed before. So if you break the rules on Facebook and incite violence, you know, in general, your content will be removed. Uh, There's a sort of strike policy at the ultimate level, your account will be removed, but it didn't use any of those existing kind of structures. Instead, it went with this kind of indefinite suspension, which I guess nods to the fact that it's a pretty significant step to remove at that point still sitting president or an elected official. But is there a sense that perhaps now that they've sort of trialled it on Trump that they might actually start using this mechanism on other world leaders, other politicians? As uh, the board punted it back to Facebook, I guess we'll have to see if they do decide within the six months uh, the board recommended, if they do actually come up with a new mechanism. The board also points out in its decision, which is extremely long, but actually really worth reading if you're a content moderation nerd uh, like me, is that is it good to distinguish, I suppose, between influential figures and politicians? Because there are a lot of very influential figures on Facebook that have a lot of uh, influence over what happens and 
on the platform and should they be treated differently from Trump? I mean, this is a question that Facebook is going to have to wrestle with itself. I just love the idea of like a, a board of like learned individuals sitting somewhere in the US <laughs> having to debate over Craig Kelly and Pete Evans. Like I just, exactly. part of me just wants to see that happen. I had to dream, honestly. <laughs> I mean, the issues from the start anyway with representation on the board, yeah. they, Facebook did attempt to have representatives from all over the world. But, you know, I think by some estimates, about 25% are still US-based. I mean, it is a US company, to be fair, but there are billions of users all over the world. And do they have sufficient representation from other countries? And do they have sufficient representation of the right type of people? I mean, as I mentioned, there are a lot of lawyers uh, and legal academics who do great work, no doubt. But what about representation from actual content creators or from the people that do the work of content moderation itself? What about from uh, community groups? You know, there's a whole lot of people that might have something to say about the role of politicians on platforms like Facebook and the dangerous kind of rhetoric and influence they can have on the platform. What do you think the ramifications of this are going to be, Cameron, in the rest of the, the internet? I guess the value of it, even if it doesn't have that much power, is it interrogates what Facebook is doing and, and essentially, you know, at its core, it's just saying, well, are you kind of being consistent with your rules? And I think that's kind of why different people see different value in it. You know, if you think it's important for a company this large to kind of have consistent rules and to be making decisions based on their policy, you know, if you're that kind of way, then you're, like, you're probably pretty interested in this. But then there's also a lot of other people who just kind of say, well, I think a lot of these decisions are made up on the fly or or are are unfair like altogether you know don't kind of make sense and so i don't necessarily care if the decisions are being made consistently and that's kind of why where i think you kind of get the you know that divergence on well do we care that trump was treated differently to other people at all Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Cameron Wilson from Crikey and from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, Ariel Bogle. Mark Fennell is my name. And Cameron, it seems Twitter would like people to play nice and they're going to make some moves to actively encourage that. Did I get that right? Yeah, Twitter's been making uh, a couple of changes around the edges lately, and two that recently have come up is, one, they're sending up prompts for people when you, you you go to compose a tweet, you say something that might be offensive, that the algorithm you know somehow determines from the keywords that you've chosen, and it will be like, hey, I noticed you've decided to say something <laughs> kind of aggressive there. Have you thought about not saying that or like rephrasing it? Oh my God, it's like um, the clippy of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it looks yeah, exactly. like you're trying to offend a group of people. Can and I help like, you with that? Absolutely. That's why form. I use this service. <laughs> uh, okay, so so practically speaking, what are the sorts of things that we're likely to see? I mean, is it literally you're trying to offend people or is it more detailed? Well, than yeah, as I kind of said, some people go on there to offend people. Look, I mean, the Twitter has, has cited these stats saying that I think 34% of people who have that prompt show up, decide to change what they're going to say. And I think they said they get 11% less offensive replies. So they're saying it kind of does, you know, affect user behavior. And I think it is one of those interesting and, and essentially like good uses of technology where you're just kind of tinkering around the edges, you're asking people about their behavior. And even by doing these small little things that don't seem honestly like massively intrusive, you can at the scale that something like Twitter has affect users' experiences because, you know, this little prompt not going to be a big deal for most users. But if you're getting, you know, 10% less offensive tweets on the platform, that's ultimately going to make a difference to a lot of users. What do you think, Ariel? Do you think it is going to change... Uh, user behaviour? 
It's hard to say. I mean, those those stats were that Cam was talking about were from a like a little sandbox, I suppose, that Twitter uh, rolled out a, a little while ago. But really, if we want to affect change and affect the ability for disinformation to spread on a platform like Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, I think we do start to need to look at design changes and interventions and adding friction that might slow down the spread of content or slow down our reactions, our sort of emotional reactions to content might be helpful. It's something worth looking at for sure. There is another component to this, which is Twitter are also talking about rolling out a tip jar. (laughs) Cameron, how is this supposed to work? Yeah, my understanding is essentially what it's going to allow some users to do is link to a payment platform of their choice. Um, There's a few out there and just say, it'll be on your profile. Someone likes your stuff. They can just easily uh, send you some money through the platform without having to really leave the website. And the idea is that they're giving audiences new ways to to pay creators who are doing things that they like. You know, it's not like a massive change. It's not like you could be, for instance, able to pay people for their tweets. You, you kind of got to go to their profile. And although like, you know, this is a new feature, people have been able to kind of do similar things in the past just by including links and stuff in their bio. But it is part of a broader push from Twitter to pay people for the content that they're kind of creating their platform, which for a lot of their life, you know, Twitter hasn't really facilitated it at all. Do you think it's the sort of thing that will have a, a significant impact on the life of key Twitter users, Ariel, or is it just going to be like a cute thing that gets a headline? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it will have less impact because it, as Cam said, is just sitting in somebody's bio. So it does require that extra navigation. So if you see it, a really funny tweet, uh, you'll have to actually go to the person's profile to pay them for it. And it's not quite the same as if there was a tip button on each tweet. I think that would create a really different scenario and would have uh, far more sort of reverberations through the ecosystem. At the moment, it's a bit, there's a bit too much friction in there to make it an everyday thing. And it's interesting too, because in its announcement, Twitter was saying it was inspired by the kind of trend at the moment when somebody has a tweet go viral, they often link underneath the tweet to say their SoundCloud. They're like, you like this tweet, check out my SoundCloud or like, in the US, there are apps called like Cash App and Venmo, which really uh, easily allow people to send money to you mm. via this app. So people have been doing that a lot. So it's funny that they didn't try and in, sort of uh, embed it in the tweet itself rather than in the profile. There's yeah a bit too much gap there for it to really, uh, I think, be a major earner for people. But it is part like of a general move uh, or trend at the moment towards monetizing your Twitter following. So Substack, which is kind of this mm. new uh, email newsletter company, but it, the founders of that company have been really open about trolling Twitter, seeing who has the biggest sort of most engaged following and approaching those people directly to invite them onto Substack to start an email newsletter, mm-hmm. often with the kind of temptation of an advance, you know, a couple of hundred grand actually in some cases. So that's a that's somebody, another company capitalising on people's Twitter following. And I think Twitter is really tr- looking for ways to capture that value for itself and make sure that it, people aren't just uh, jumping off Twitter into other platforms. Cameron, how do you think the addition of a financial incentive will shift the way people interact on Twitter? Like from like a psychological point of view, how, how do you think that's going to change behaviour on Twitter? 
I think this is kind of important for Twitter because they've been such a nexus of a lot of the information that's going through the internet to, I mean, I guess you'd call them like influencers, not in the like Instagram way, but, you know, often like journalists, other public figures. And so they've had, you know, a lot of people have these Twitter accounts where they disseminate information, you know, a lot of people go there to get their information. But for the most part, they haven't really done a good job of, of letting people make money from that. You know, like Twitter, minor settings for, for the most part, makes its money through, you know, advertising. And if you, anyone who's used the service will be like, it's advertising is not very good. And, and I personally, like, I don't think I've ever clicked on an ad intentionally. What they're doing now is they're trying to let people, as you said, make money directly through that. And I think it is like a couple of years too late, but, you know, I guess it's good for creators that they're getting in there now. It is part of this bigger trend where we're seeing platforms offer ways to monetize on on different kinds of content and there's like massive trend where we're seeing everywhere where it's it's now possible to monetize so many different parts of your life you know you can now you, you know you have a link that people can donate through your twitter account you are doing sponsored posts on instagram uh people can tip you in the youtube live streams or twitch live streams that you're doing um and it's a way to kind of break down all these different parts of your labor to earn money through that which you, like you didn't want depending to mention on, all your only all your only fans accounts can yeah, exactly. OnlyFans is another great example. <laughs> yeah, and so like you're like you know we're seeing people being able to monetize all these different parts of our lives, and depending on whether you're like a tech optimist or you have a feeling this is more of a dystopia, you're like maybe that's good or maybe it's scary that we can, like every part of our life can now be used to to make money. I think what it does is it like to maybe be very optimistic about it. People are making you know content that people want to see and if you make if it's valuable why shouldn't you be able to make some money for that I, I think that's ultimately good for creators Ariel most important question who on the internet would you pay for uh, <laughs> <laughs> mate this was literally in the notes you knew it was coming <laughs> I know I know but then I, I I had an answer and now I'm second guessing my answer why are you saying okay without revealing the name then why are you no, second no, no, guessing no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> let me say I, I'll pay for Wint for sure. What is Wint? It's this account <laughs> that somehow has... Oh, Cam, help me. How does one explain it? Uh, He's just like, it, it is the soul of Twitter somehow. It's this account that just absurdist. tweets sort of absurdist tape. I was going to say something very intellectual drill. like, oh, my favourite uh, writer I will pay for. But no, Wint is my favourite writer and I want to There's pay W-I-N-T. Okay, yeah. here we go. Found it. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to get a call from IT, aren't I? This is good. Uh, just firstly, you should go do this on your own people, uh, if you're listening to this, but it's funny and it's Twitter-specific comedy. That's that's the simplest way in which I'm, I'm going to... Perfect, you, you really nailed it. Shut up. <laughs> um, uh, Cam, Cam, who is the person on Twitter that you would pay for? The answer's obvious. Uh, Mark Fennell and Ariel Bogle. Oh, so kind. Oh, please. <laughs> I mean, don't oh, get me oh, wrong. You can, you I'm a megalomaniac me. and a narcissist. I, I, I love it, but you're just embarrassing yourself now. Well, look, I would, I would pay Wint for certain, but in some ways, I'm already paying a few people because I have signed up to a few people's Substacks based on their Twitter. Mm. So there's a writer. She used to write for New York Magazine. She writes a lot about like pop culture, culture in general. Uh, Hunter Harris, and I just think she's really funny based on her Twitter. And when she's created a email newsletter, I signed up and I pay for that. So right. maybe that, I should have just paid her through her Twitter profile to begin with. 
Fair enough. Uh, Cam, do you want to take a stab at this or are you, are you happy to keep sucking up to me? Which, by the way, I'm totally yeah. fine with. <laughs> That's why you invited me on. Uh, yeah, there's also another a couple of um, journalists who I support through Substack at the moment. I think the interesting thing about this is that it's it's not a direct like pay for content. It's not like I have to pay to access their tweets. It's more like I want to support someone who's doing good work. And so I can see that someone may be, you know, hey, look, maybe someone is just saying, like, I, I need to raise money for something and can you please donate to me or maybe it's just like i want to support your content generally it's not that you've done an awesome tweet um so i think it you know i'll probably mostly use it insofar as like oh that person's doing really good work broadly i want to i want to help them out rather than being like i need to see this content from them it's basically patronage this is the renaissance and you're a medici and you're just doling out love as you see fit Precise. Exactly. Well, I'm glad we sorted that out. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Apple have unveiled their competitor for Tile, uh, which is something called Apple AirTags. You add it to physical things and when you lose them, you press a button, it finds them. That's the simplest term. It's it's a way of dealing with lost keys, lost phones, lost wallets. And Tile is probably their number one competitor. has been out for a while and Apple have now entered the market and not without controversy. Officeworks have pulled these off the shelves, at least for a period of time, over concern over child safety and I'm trying to wrap my head around this right so I mean given that they're basically the same size and shape as things like tile why is it that air tags have come in for this scrutiny cam yeah my understanding is that we've had um, some new laws or, or new uh, regulations brought in around small objects and these battery um, the button batteries and so mm. I think you know in the past I mean obviously tile's been around for a while I'm not sure if they've subsequently been, uh, they've had to change their model for this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they were brought in December. And essentially it's around the idea that these small button batteries can be swallowed easily by children and it's a serious harm. And so I think what they need to do is, uh, I think it's have, have screws over them or other designs. Uh, Apple has come out and said, we are abiding by all these rules, but I think what they've fallen afoul of is a restriction that says, well, if you aren't gonna have a screw that stops the, the essentially the, the back from popping off it, you need to have that clear on the packaging, which they don't have. So I think as far as it goes, this is probably a, a problem that will be sorted out fairly quickly. It's kind of a rule now, I think, now that when any new technology comes out, it will get this kind of scrutiny and that's a really good thing. I mean, we've seen so many instances. I myself did a story a few years ago with a, an app that was really popular in schools here in Australia that was a means of communication between teacher and parents. And, you know, the teacher could send uh, reminders to the parents of like what their kid was up to during the day, maybe a photo of an artwork they'd created. But it was also an element, a way that a parent, an estranged parent, for example, could keep tabs on their kid or even send messages in the comments on these photos to the other parent, you know, in, in, in an intimidating way, for example. And it's not something that the company had really come up with great solutions for. It was really left to the parent or the teacher to advocate for the kid's safety in that instance. So I think it's a really good thing that all these technologies now are getting the type of scrutiny we're seeing here. But it seems like Apple, before it put this on the market, did not do a thorough analysis of how this might play out in a stalking situation or in a family violence situation. So I actually personally haven't got my hands on any AirTags to play around with them, but 
this is based on a Washington Post article where the reporter um, allowed another reporter to sort of attach his AirTag to her bag, I think, and then waited to see how she would be notified that someone had, uh, unbeknownst to her, attached something so that they could follow where she was as she moved through her day through the city. And she said, uh, I think in this piece, that it took like about three days maybe for an alert to go off. And even then, the tag just sort of beeped for about 15 seconds and then subsided. I think there's also an issue here with notifying between Android and an iPhone. But in general, I mean, Apple has thought through the risk of people using AirTags to follow somebody without their knowledge. And that is, to be honest, a little more than some of the other companies that make a similar product have done. But nevertheless, probably not enough. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think what's telling here is that Apple have actually put some consideration into how to deal with stalking issues. And none of their other competitors have really engaged with it. But of course, once you start to actually pull focus to it, you realise all the different ways in which it's not entirely fit to the task, I guess, Cam. Yeah, exactly. There are certain things that they will do to kind of alert people if they think it's being used in a kind of stalking way, or at least, you know, just in case it might be. So the examples are that it'll, it'll play, the AirTag will play a noise after three days if it's been really close to just, I think it's like one person's iPhone uh, and it will also send a message. But the interesting kind of things that, the thing that I found kind of almost like dumbfounding was that some of these settings won't actually work with people who don't have iPhones. So people who have Android phones won't get a prompt after the AirTag has been close to them for a few days. And so you're weirdly saying that some uh, of the safety measures won't be able to be, um, won't help all kinds of people. But like, like you kind of said, like, you know, I've used Tile in the past. I'm someone who loses stuff all the time. I found the product to be not very good. Apparently, AirTag is, uh, you know, a little bit better. But it is funny, of course, you know, once they get into it. And I think it's, you know, kind of unavoidable that once a behemoth like Apple gets into this, that there's going to be more scrutiny on them and, and good. And hopefully these other competitors also introduce similar safety measures. In terms of how actually effective the product is comparative to others on the market, Cam, is there any sense of which ones you think are or, you know, if you had to make a choice as a consumer, particularly whether you are already in the Apple universe or you're not in the Apple universe, you brought up uh, the issues around using Android phones earlier. If you had to choose right now, is there a sense of which one you'd be better off with? Yeah, I, I think my understanding is that because these air tags fit into that Apple ecosystem, they will probably be more useful. And the reason is because, you know, a couple of these products, what they'll do is they will communicate based with not just your phone to the to the tag, but also anyone else who often owns that product. So for example, if you're a Tile user, anyone who has the Tile app, if you walk past an air ta- a, a, a Tile, it will ping and then your phone will also then tell the person's phone who, who owns that uh, Tile. So that's a way that you can then use this network to find stuff that you've lost. I mean, Apple, of course, is a juggernaut in the mobile space and, and theirs is um, obviously going to be the biggest network. So it's very likely that that kind of use will be much more it'll be much more useful from Apple. Generally, I mean, I haven't used Tile for a couple of years. I found it to be not that good. So, and I haven't used AirTag yet, but by all reports, it's it's a, a pretty, um, it seems to be a, a further iteration and, and a bit better. Uh, and for you, Ariel, if you had to choose right now based on sort of what ecosystem you're working in at the moment, do you have a preference? Well, look, I never lose things. That's not true. <laughs> so you're the person that doesn't lose stuff. No, not true. I knew that person existed somewhere. I just haven't heard them yet. No, not true at all, though, to be honest, I haven't actually experimented with 
any kind of technology in this space, even though I should, I kind of let my lost things lie at the moment. And so I'm not, <laughs> I just consider it a matter of fate and I don't think I'll be buying either product. Wow. It's the last time the show's ended on the, somebody admitting that it's just a matter of fate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Cam from Crikey. Thank you so much for being on the show. Fancy reporter Cam Wilson. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Cam Wilson is a fancy reporter slash associate editor at Crikey. And Ariel Bogle, lovely to have you back on the show. Thanks, Mark. Ariel Bogle is with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to enjoy perusing the most. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.